Suze, how are you? Ah, oh, good day, Jeff. I'm really good. What about yourself? Uh, I am getting ready to be in vacation mode here. So hey, I am that like, good. yeah, I am ready to be uh, under a palm tree um, on, on a beach in so some hot sun with a cold beverage. A serious vacation then. This is a serious vacation. Uh, this is no Wi-Fi. This is, <laughs> this is disconnected. Ah, so you're not going to have any sense of how uh, people react to this this show once we push it out this this month. It'll it'll be a surprise. A few days, <laughs> a few days when I get home, we'll see how we'll see how people like it. Uh, hopefully, uh, don't at me on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. How how often do you actually intentionally unplug? Do you you do it pretty often? Don't I do you? it. I do it quite a bit. I do it. Uh, I do it a substantive, substantively at you know every couple of months I try to just because of the nature of my work being digital and fast and um, connected all the time. So I try to like just take a, an intensive week and step away. So that's next week. It's really interesting. I actually don't think I've done anything like that for a long time. Oh, but you now should do with it. Uh, well, that's n- now that. Um, I'm only a few months away from motherhood and the kid yeah. coming along. I'm actually trying to start um, moving away from technology just because yeah. I don't want my first few months of my my child's life to be right. my head embedded in, in something digital. I want yeah. it to be engaged with her. And so I'm actually pretty consciously now starting to create some barriers for myself. Mm-hmm. I, th- I think once, once your daughter comes along... Um, we're going to have some interesting discussions about the place of technology in children's lives and the next generation's lives. I, I, you know, I look to my kids and I'm, I, I, sometimes I don't even recognize the the world that they're growing up in, you know? Yeah. And, um, I guess that's uh, maybe we had the same thing with our parents when, you know, when we were kids, you know, the kind of like parents don't like your rock music, but, um, I don't yeah. know. <laughs> It'll I be, think that's- I, I think that's really interesting. And I, even similarly thinking about museums differently for me, I only hmm. had the realization this week that it will be the first time I really regularly go to museums with children instead of yeah. as an adult and yep. how differently wow, yeah. I'm going to experience them. You're going to go see a lot of dinosaurs. <laughs> yeah, that's fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> so do you have any follow-up from the last episode? I kind of feel like the self-care episode was pretty well received. We got a lot of nice nice tweets and reactions to people telling us how, how they take care of themselves. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, to be fair, it's not a, it's not a topic that you're going to be really nasty about. <laughs> true. Yeah. <laughs> Most of the time. Um, but yeah. Touché. It was interesting to see how many people it resonated with and that there really there does seem to be a very conscious mm-hmm. effort that people are making to figure out what is and isn't working for them in terms of museum careers. And I, I've yeah. noticed that trend continuing around just online conversations that I've been seeing happening lately around yeah. how people prioritize themselves and, and what their needs are within their careers. Yeah. Um, I also wanted to apologize to some people um, who requested stickers. Um, we're still waiting on a, a reorder. So uh, we did send out another shipment, but we have a, a, a backlog that that we're working to fill. So just hold tight. Stickers are on their way. 
and keep asking us for them. Yeah. But just know that they might be uh, <laughs> lovely surprises when they arrive as opposed to uh, ones that you'll get immediately. Yeah. Cool. So, um, Suze, what are we talking about today? You know, today we are talking about a thing that I think is a really interesting dynamic. We're talking about that role of outsiders in museums and in pushing change in museums and that can be outsiders like artists for Mm -hmm. artist interventions but also the importance of uh, commercial practitioners and vendors and how people outside museums are often really um, important catalysts for for change and transformation yeah this is this is something that I, i i you know i've been it's been on my mind a lot lately just because the studio is kind of tasked with thinking about what what skills and resources need to be internalized for uh, hmm. a museum of the 21st and and you know now that we're well into the 21st century, 22nd century. Like we got to be thinking about that. So um, thinking about what we outsource, what vendors we work with versus what we bring in to the fold is something that. Um, I am really cognizant of at this point. So I'm looking forward to having this discussion with our two amazing guests this month. Yeah, it's funny. I've also been thinking about this topic, but particularly since I left uh, working within a museum and went back into academia is just really thinking about, well, what my role is now as someone who sort of straddles these worlds of I'm no longer an insider in museums and yet it is still my world absolutely and completely. Yeah. So who are we talking to today, Jeff? We have a couple rock stars this episode. We have uh, George Sissel, who um, many of our listeners may uh, know from founding the Contemporary in Baltimore and um, being a driving force for um, one of the, I, I would say, one of the most influential exhibitions uh, over the last couple decades, Mining the Museum uh, yeah. in Baltimore with Fred Wilson. Absolutely. I had an absolute fangirl moment when he said yes and to coming and talking to us today. And I'm really, really excited about it. We're also talking to uh, Jen Brown, otherwise known as the Engaging Educator, who does really interesting work bringing improv and improvisation techniques into museums as well as into many other spaces. And she is going to talk to us about what she gets from working with museums, and we'll get to dig a little deeper into both of those. George Sissel has mounted groundbreaking exhibitions, created community arts programs, and taught fine arts and humanities courses for close to 50 years. He trained as a sculptor studying with Osamu Noguchi, And for 15 years, he developed high school interdisciplinary curriculum and work-study programs for the emotionally disadvantaged. In 1985, he opened the George Sissel Gallery, where he promoted the careers of young and emerging artists. From 1989 to 1996, Sissel was the director and founder of The Contemporary, an unmuseum which challenges existing conventions for exhibiting art in non-traditional sites, focusing its exhibitions and outreach on connecting artists' work with the people's everyday lives. 
from 1997 to 2017. As curator in residence at the Maryland Institute College of Art, he continued to develop new models for connecting art, artists and audiences by creating the Exhibition Development Seminar, Curatorial Studies Concentration and the MFA in Curatorial Practice. George, welcome to the show. It is so great to have you here. Thank you for the invitation. Uh, so we are talking today about outsiders in museums and I, I, I think sort of that balance between insiders and outsiders and I've always been really excited about the contemporary and the work that you did there. So you were founder and the first director of the Contemporary Museum in Baltimore, which continues today as a nomadic, non-collecting art museum. In its early years, the contemporary was dedicated to redefining the concept of the museum. I'd really love to hear a little bit about how the contemporary started and what drove you to seek to redefine or reimagine museums and museum practice. Yes, that is certainly the core question. And um, I always, when I talk to my students, I want to put this in sort of historical context. Because in 1989, um, what was going on certainly in the museum world uh, looked a lot different than almost three decades later. Hmm. Um, so I always try to put that in context. Because in 1989, when we look back at that point in history, especially in art history, in the art world, it was the height of the culture wars. Mm-hmm. And uh, during the culture wars, as we know, uh, people really were looking at the, the work, you know, of Serrano and Maplethorpe and Andy Sprinkle and people like that, and and questioning the government. Meaning, our government was questioning, you know, who is this art for? Why are we putting funds towards this? And it was a um, it was an unfortunate time. It was a very difficult time, um, but the. The fortuitous thing that I think that came out of that was that museums had to start questioning what they were doing because they were being accused of being elitist in terms of what, you know, what they were showing, the artists they were choosing, because they were not seeing a relationship um, to the world outside of the art world in terms of the larger audience. So my interest really was in looking at that, looking at could we examine, explore, deconstruct what a museum was in 1989. And that, that included many areas. It wasn't just looking at what museums collect and how they collect them and their exhibition practices, but also very important elements such as their board makeup, their staff makeup, you know, the people that were making the decisions, raising the monies for this. And out of that, uh, really, to, to me, was the core question of audience. Mm-hmm. So, all of that to me in 1989 was about who was the audience for museums outside of the museum world. So, outside meaning of the, the museum members, of artists, you know, of collectors, of art historians, a very important audience. But it was a very it was a limited audience. And so I really wanted to re- sort of raise the, the, the other question was who cares? <laughs> who, right. who, who cares beyond that, that audience that already was existing and supporting the museum um, beyond that? And you know, so, go ahead. Yeah, George, this notion of audience centrality, even in 2017, yes. is uh, it considered to be, um, I, I guess, a mildly progressive um, idea. And so in 1989, I mean, you're talking about this in 1989, 1990. Um, that must have been, must have 
blown some minds back Well, then. it was interesting. Um, in 89, I remember in 89 and 90 and 91, uh, Lisa Korn and Jed Dodd, staff members who worked with me back, back then at the Contemporary, we went to AAM uh, conferences. Mm-hmm. And uh, nowhere in any panel, in any discussion, in any thematic discussions, were they talking about audience like we are right now, right? like museums are today. And so it's interesting that, that it was, quote-unquote, revolutionary, not just the concept of what a museum might be, but the fact that, that no one had ever really – and I'm not, I'm not saying that no one – you notice I haven't mentioned education departments in museums, right? Sure, sure. <laughs> because the education departments were the ones looking right. at audience, right? But they were looking at audiences that were more in prog- programmatically in terms of what they were doing, and they, they were doing and continue to do incredible work. You know? But it wasn't the curatorial staff that was doing that. It wasn't the directors that were, or the boards that were dictating what the mission of the museum might be. Be that included the larger audience, but the education department, of course, was because it was made up mostly of artists <laughs> uh, who were really not just practitioners in the field, but really saw what they were doing as important beyond just their own studio. Yeah, George, what you know, in those early days of the contemporary, what what affordances or freedoms came from being a museum without a space, right? Without a, without a yeah. building or a museum yeah. without a collection. Yeah, exactly. And, and then on the opposite side of that, what were some of the constraints you had to deal with kind of working outside this more traditional legacy model? Right. Well, I, I, was, I would say certainly the, the freedoms were that we really were able to be nomadic. We were able to go into different communities. We were able to form collaborations and create residencies that the projects and the exhibitions we did were really almost customized, site-specific, if you will, to that artist, their work, the content of their work, the audience uh, where, where we were taking these projects to, um, whether that audience was a traditional audience or it was a, you know, a, a non-traditional audience. And so we had these freedoms to, to create these very interesting uh, dialogues uh, with artists and with communities um, throughout that. And also I would say the freedoms it gave us was to, because we were questioning what a museum was, we had to question ourselves. So we were constantly looking at what we were doing, why we were doing it, and sort of using this as a, a continual constant assessment tool going into these different communities. Um, I would say the, the re- rest- restraints of it back then were that unlike today, um, it was not, a, not um, at Baltimore or elsewhere even, it was not a collaborative community, right? So both the art community and the community at large. So everyone talked back then about the, p- the pie. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, huh. so the, that, that was the huge, the discussion, huh. right? And so we were, there were front page articles before we even did our first project in Baltimore uh, with the museums that existed in Baltimore saying, we don't need, right? We don't need this, right? We hadn't even done anything yet to even show people what it, what it may have been different than what they were already doing. But they were really trying to say, 
Well, the pie, again, it had to do, it didn't really have to do with the concept of what we were doing or saying, well, let's expand the contemporary art world here. It really had to do, sadly, with money. Right. And, and because, again, back to 89, the culture wars, it became about money. Uh, it became about that the funding was being pulled from museums who were doing exhibitions that weren't reaching a wider audience. And so it's interesting to think about the, how the funding, of course, as we know, shifted away from exhibitions into audience development and community outreach. Uh, so I'd say with this re, the, that restriction really was that it wasn't a collaborative community, so we were working in isolation from, I don't mean the artist community, but I mean the institutional community because they felt that, again, that, that funding pie and that um, membership pie and all of that and from foundations was only so large and it, and it, was, not gonna, it was only going to be cut into six slices, not eight. Huh. It's interesting because when I think about um, mining the museum, which is one of one of the things that we wanted to talk to you about, which was such a revolutionary exhibition uh, created 25 years ago, it it was, as far as I'm aware, and I'm sure you can talk to this, a collaboration between the Contemporary and the Maryland Historical Society, and and obviously artist Fred Wilson. Yeah. And in that exhibition, for for people, for listeners who might not be familiar with it. Basically, Wilson came in and subverted the way history was being told and presented within the museum. So he he used the collection and the archives and the resources of the Historical Society to highlight histories of African-American slavery and stories that really hadn't been told within the museum context. Sure. So Wilson was essentially critiquing the idea of what a museum is through his intervention. But obviously you as the contemporary were also critiquing what a museum is. But you, this, this notion that actually it was not necessarily a collaborative space initially, you must have been forging so many connections that were then quite challenging both, I'm sure, from all sides. Can you talk just a little bit about then the germination of this exhibition, how it came together, and then how it affected your own thinking about museum practice and what a museum should be doing? Right. Well, it's interesting because uh, Mining the Museum was our fourth project. Mm -hmm. um, only, we were only two years old. And uh, the three projects before that that we had done, uh, Visual Aids, uh, photo Manifesto, US, uh, photography from the USSR, and Soul Shadows, Urban Warrior Myths. So exhibitions really dealing with very timely topics um, in terms of what was going on in 1990 and 91, especially um, uh, mass incarceration, uh, the U uh, censorship in the USSR by artists, and, and obviously the AIDS epidemic, right? But these, and so these three projects in our first two years we're getting a lot of attention here in, in Baltimore and um, a lot of support and, and interest and, and excitement, right? And people were starting to understand very much this exploration, how we were trying to connect artists and art and audiences, right? How to sort of connect people's everyday life to what contemporary artists were doing. People understood that. But no one in those three projects ever talked about or wrote about the first question that we had as an institution, which was defi what defines a museum, mm -hmm. right? So no one was talking about that, right? Even though, so no one was talking about these as case studies, right? but 
They were very impactful, effective exhibitions without question. So we, after our, our second project, after the second project and going into the third, said to ourselves, um, both the board and, and staff, Lisa Corrin and, and Jed Dodds and, and the board and myself, really talked about, wait a minute, let's stop a second. We're doing, we're doing work that obviously people are receiving very well in, the, in these three different communities because, again, those three uh, uh, were not in, in institutions. They were in non-traditional spaces. Mm-hmm. Um, so we said to ourselves, we need to choose a project, an artist, that the whole purpose of it is to question a museum, right? And so we, of course, looked at, obviously, the history of, you know, artists, um, you know, like Hans Hacke and uh, Andre Frazier and other people who certainly had been doing that, right, uh, in, their own pra- in their own practice. But we wanted to, as an institution, to say, well, what would happen if we use that as the guiding force of a project? And so we started looking at artists, emerging artists at the time. This is 1991. And we knew of Fred's work uh, in, at, in commercial galleries and in alternative spaces in New York and the Bronx. So we were, we were aware of what he was doing, and we certainly knew that his practice was a, almost a faux museum practice in terms of using you know, reproductions of objects, uh, you know, creating spaces that look like natural history museums, and things like that. But we knew he had never actually worked in a museum or worked with real objects. And so we brought Fred uh, to Baltimore. We brought Fred to Baltimore, um, basically, to look at all the museums here, and took him on a tour. And um, in the long run, by the end of the day, the Maryland Historical Society was his number one choice, uh, because when he went into that museum, he came out and he said, "Where, where am I? <laughs> where am I?" in this museum and where is my where is my story you know as an african-american uh, represented in here hmm. that, and, that origin yeah that origin story is is so interesting um and you know i, th- I think you know even though mining the museum was a cross-institutional partnership and an artist intervention you know looking looking back on i kind of and maybe this is just my personal view of it or i'm sure some other people have this view but it's it almost seems like it took a lot of bravery for the Maryland Historical Society to be a part of this. and almost They, is... they deserve so much credit for that. It's very interesting you say that because uh, people sort of uh, uh, assume that they got all this criticism for doing it, uh, you know, uh, for doing this kind of project, to being yeah. under the microscope. Um, of course, the opposite is a matter of fact, history, the, the history books sort of show, the majority of the history books, you know, present this as their project. Um, and, uh, you know, we, the contemporary, of course, you know, work with Fred and presented the a proposal, you know, to the, the, the Maryland Historical Society and, you know, created the collaboration and what the parameters would that, would that be. Um, so all that was done certainly as a collaboration that, that Fred was at the core of and that the institution's staff and volunteers and docents uh, worked together. You know, so we, we created that structure um, uh, subsequently uh, from that. And also I would say that, so, 
So that being the case, so now we had Fred, we had this artist who was really interested in this opportunity to work in a museum with a real collection to sort of tell his story, you know, through his eyes, but with their work. Um, but we also had this uncanny opportunity that, again, we did not plan, but became a part of the scheduling that AAM's first conference in Baltimore was in uh, 1992. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So all, <laughs> Perfect so, timing. So we're like, when we found that, that was like, okay, let's schedule. Can we, can we, can the historical side and the contemporary in terms of our uh, planning, um, can we, are we able to schedule this for when that is here? Um, so, which of course we did. And, um, you know, over 4,000 delegates came uh, during that, that week at that week to see the exhibition, which of course forced us. And of course the New York times came and covered it. And it forced us to, uh, fortunately to extend the run of the show so that museums from all over the country, uh, came with their staffs. Uh, and met with the, especially with the contemporary, to really talk about that. But their questions, uh, their their museum's questions were, what's next? <laughs> so so that was of course no one had, I mean we knew what was next. The contemporary we were off, we were off from there with Alice and Sarah in the back of a 1957 Chevy pickup truck going into eight <laughs> right, communities right. in five states. So we knew what was next for us. But the question was, well, what happens now? What, how do you, can you sustain this? Meaning, meaning in terms of a museum, uh, it's practice. So yes, the historical study, back to your saying in terms of the bravery, without question that they, um, uh, people had and still acknowledged that, that they were really the heroes in that and that they also allowed the contemporary as an outside, as a young, I mean, we were just new kids on the block uh, to be able to come in there. And, and you know, the, it's the oldest institution in the state of Maryland. You know, it's, so here we were the youngest right. yeah. uh, coming, coming. And so it was oh, an interesting collaboration yeah. in terms of, of that perspective also. And also, of course, thinking about the audience that we were bringing into there was not just this museum field, but were artists. So artists from our community, outside the community, had rarely ever entered the doors of the historical society. George, do you think that the museum, or in fact museums in general, can perform this kind of introspection themselves without an external catalyst? I mean, I think you're talking about having so many delegates come and see this exhibition at AAM's conference, and how that led to this question of what's next. But but how important is it being able to work with an external catalyst for something like this? Well, it's interesting when um, when it was the show was over and the director Lisa and I uh, met with and the board presidents we all met to to talk about this right and um, the board was asking the historical studies director and the curators what's what's next and they looked to us wanting us to continue collaborating with them. Uh, as sort of the answer to that, right? Which is an interesting answer, like that, that they were actually open to us staying there in their home and work, working you know, together. Uh, but of course, let's say we were on to other things. But my answer to them was that, well, the answer is very easy. It's artist, 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 right? So 
Fred made that, you know, yes, we, we, we had the idea in terms of what our next project would be. We engaged him in, in that. We commissioned him to do the work. We created a collabor collaborative structure for and the process. Yes. But Fred, it, it, it's the artist. And everything the contemporary did was always centered around the artist. Um, but he's the one who did that. So, yes, it's always wonderful uh, to have collaboration, to bring outside people and perspectives and to look at different working processes but for me, it really is about what the, the artist is the one who has the vision. We, the contemporary didn't have the vision for my museum. Fred did. Right? We just have a, a, our vision was basically to say, how, how do we open this up to give artists opportunities you know, to make these connections with audiences outside of the art world? Right. You, George, you have no idea how many meetings I've been in at work where, where mining the museum has come up as a reference. And, you know, I almost like, I, as we were kind of thinking about this, you know, I almost place the place the that exhibition as like the like the ad <laughs> you know like it's after mining the museum everything kind of like uh seems to the perspective seems to to change and i'm wondering if um you feel that anything has changed in museums and the way that we deal with stories and with history since since that exhibition um uh, i or do you think that that exhibition have, uh, has had a, a lasting impact on the sector yeah uh, without question and and again whether it, it, even if it doesn't directly go back 25 years ago in the mining museum in terms of what's happened since then, right? Because again, there are other factors we have to look at in terms of the culture wars and funding shifting to audience development from, from, from the government and things like that. So there, there are certainly lots, lots of factors, right? In, in all of that. And artists, artists also came more to the forefront in terms of working in museums, right? They were given a, a a voice, uh, not just a curatorial voice, but also a voice in, in terms of um, how they work in museums. Right? So I think that this, there has been a great change. You look at AAM today, you look at the last 10 years of the, of the themes of the AAM conferences, right? Every single one of them have to do with audience and engagement and equity. Every single one, right? So there is a huge shift. And a, and a focus. Now, not that there's still room for, for change. There has to be still room for it. If not, why are we still talking about mining the museum? Why, why are we still having these conversations if, if, it, if our, our approach and our methodology of working in museums has completely shifted? No, it's certainly shifted. And certainly we see that in, in um, the training you know, of curators and the training of educators and uh, and people, museum administrators, that in their training, they are now having to talk about you know, who is the audience for these institutions. Yeah, George, it's actually, listening to you makes me feel incredibly optimistic uh, because there is a sense, I think, sometimes when you're working uh, as a progressive practitioner or someone who is seeking to make change, Sometimes it feels like such a, um, you know, that you're really pushing the sort of proverbial rock up a hill. But you've been really doing progressive practice and boundary pushing work for close to 50 years now within the sector. I'd love to hear just any particular insight that you've gained from, from being progressive 
over such a long period of time and and what lessons you'd pass along to emerging practitioners or those who are still concerned with change and concerned with trying to put the audience at the forefront and, and really think about what museum practice is today? Well, I, I would say I always sort of look at the, what the creative practice of an artist is in terms of their process in working, making art. Um, and, and certainly it all begins with, you know, research, you know, it, it begins with reflection. It begins with an idea um, before you know how to develop it, right? So for me, in people who are looking to, to, to make change in the field, um, one really has to step back and really examine, do that research in terms of what the history of the practice is, right? Because again, there are a lot of good things which we need to still retain that happen in museums. Without, you know, we, we're not going to uh, negate that. But we need to, I think, I say to my students all the time, know the history, but also then figure out in terms as, as an artist would do, what are the options before you edit down to the final one that's going to be the, the most effective, you know, as, as, your, as your art or as your ex exhibition or as the project you're working for. So I'm, I very much, um, and I think within that is, is inherent the willingness yourself to change and to adapt and to adjust. Um, I very much am an advocate in terms of a, a consensus model of, of working uh, as a team. And so I always talk to my students about that, about to me the real success of the contemporary um, was not just the projects, was the we. And I mean the we, I mean, this. it wasn't me as the founder. It was the we, it was the staff, it was the board. It were all the partners and collaborators. It was all the hundreds of volunteers, all that worked to carry out an artist's vision. And so I, th I think that that one needs to know how to 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 make make decisions together as a team. That there's not this hierarchy of the decision comes on high and everyone else carries out the work for you. George, before we let you go, I just wanted to touch on um, something that came out of um, the recent uh, talk you gave with Fred Wilson, um, celebrating the 25th anniversary of Mining the Museum. This happened a few weeks ago. Um, and this notion, um, I'm not sure if it was you or Fred who brought it up, I can't remember, but the notion that a museum should be a place where anything can happen. Um, notion that that museum should be del a delightful surprising experience um i'm wondering if um if i i assume i know the answer to this but um if you if you still believe that if um and if you feel um that we're making progress toward that end i i feel just just as afraid when he walked in the door of stock society said where am i in this right where where am I in this? I think for me that this museum space, and again, the contemporary tried to do this in the environments that we created as these unmuseum, you know, spaces, that it has to be a welcoming, inviting environment, right? I want to be able 
And I say to my students, like, you know, I, I want to bring my Aunt Darce. We all have an, I want to bring my Aunt Darce. Yeah. Like, so w w what am I bringing her to, right? What is she experiencing? Does she feel at home? Does she feel welcome? Does she feel that this is part of what she can talk to me about? So yes, they certainly are these and need to be places of, again, that we welcome and invite people into. And I think we're very fortunate. It's interesting, almost three decades later in Baltimore, like five years ago, our two major museums became free, right? And the difference, I mean, you could look at the statistics in the, at the Walters and the BMA and see just, this is not just in terms of number, but issues of diversity of the audience, right? Of the difference that that made. Because it, it, it made them places where there were not, wasn't the obstacle of education, knowledge, income. Right? It was just our doors are open to all. And, and to me, that's, I mean, that has to be the message, right? I mean, it's another, another uh, quandary, uh, challenge, of course, once they get in, in there, inside the doors, then what happens? And what are they looking at and what it means to them and who's interpreting it and what they're collecting and all and and also like I said before like who's making those decisions in terms of the board and the staff but 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 I think those things are shifting also yeah, I think that's a great place to end. <laughs> yeah, uh, amazing. George, thank you so much. Oh, Just thank as you. And Jeffrey thank AAM for sponsoring <laughs> what you're doing. Indeed. <laughs> well, when, when Jeffrey was talking about how influential um, Mining the Museum has been in his work, similarly for me, it, it was, I think, a, a definitive moment was learning about that exhibition because it really shifted the way I was thinking about museums and museum practice so to have the opportunity to talk to you about its history and and all of the issues that have come out of it has been an absolute delight thank you Jen Brown is the founder and artistic director of the engaging educator through the Engaging Educator, her pedagogical approach to, of improv as continuing education has reached more than 25,000 people, all non-actors. Since 2012, Jen has given TEDx talks on the power of improv, grown the Engaging Educator to three locations in New York City, Winston-Salem, North Carolina, and Los Angeles, and recently began the Engaging Educator Foundation, which is a 501c3 offering free and low-cost improv workshops for educators, at-risk adults, teens, and students on the autism spectrum. Jen holds degrees and accreditation from Marquette University, City College of New York, St. Joseph's University, and Second City. Jen, welcome to Museopunks. Hey, happy to be here. Glad to have you. Um, been wanting to talk for a long time. Um, so... The Engaging Educator does work with museums, but also with Fortune 500 companies, startups, universities, and a broad kind of range of, of, of clients you have. Before we get too far into this interview, can you just talk to us a little bit about how the museum sector became one of those focus areas for your company? Sure. Sure thing. Actually, the museum area is where it all started. I was 
an actor for a long time, went, decided in New York that I really was not happy being an actor. So I went back to school for art history at City College. And one of my professors actually flat out told me, he's like, you are no curator, you should look into museum education, because I was so excited with making museums accessible. I, I would fight people in class pretty much when it was the whole like high and mighty art conversation. So I still remember this single professor from City College, Professor Hauser, and he's like, you are a museum educator tenfold, go do this. And I applied for an internship at the Guggenheim, and the rest is kind of history on that front because I worked there for a few years when I realized that I really missed improv. So when I went back, I was looking at improv in a very different way because my nickname at the Guggenheim was The Show Pony by Sharon Batsky, which <laughs> she's, she's lovely, but I, it's still to this day when I ask her about that, she's like, yeah, you don't get ruffled. You go out there and you do what you got to do. And it was so much of my improv training that got me in that place to begin with. So when I started EE, the Engaging Educator, I was offering class only to museum educators. And then from there, it ended up opening into like educators from schools, random sales professionals. And I finally made a choice that I was like, hey, I am not going to turn my head at money. I'm going to say yes to this. And we'll teach everyone except actors. So while I still work with a lot of museums, we also do work with corporations and schools and kids and people on the autism spectrum. Museums are still my like very close to my heart. So I just actually got back from a consulting job with The Ringling in Sarasota. And right before that, I was in Sarnia in Ontario with a museum. So we're still very, very rooted in museums. We also just happen to say yes to everyone. Huh. Which I guess is very much uh, the the improv notion of yes and, you know that that you you start in one area and then you take the possibilities as they as they come along and you accept those gifts. So I guess tell us a little bit more then about why improv, like what what the techniques or what it is in improvisation that can really help the museum work or really work in general. Well, I think the biggest thing is the idea that improv is is rooted in communication. So many people misunderstand it. I, I ask everyone at the beginning of improv workshops, like, what's the first thing that you think of? And the answers range from like terror to Jerry Seinfeld to laughter to spontaneity. And really, it's just listening and responding. And in museums, I think it's something that we don't often do very well Shockingly, many other careers feel the same way because the same problems that I see in educators and docents and boards for museums, they're the same problems on different levels for kids in school or teachers at schools or even some of the companies that we've worked with. I think communication skills is the biggest draw in people signing up for improv workshops, whether that be presentation skills, they want to be better speakers, or they want to listen better, or they just want to have some fun doing what they do, and they're taking something like that idea of risk-taking. So while improv like touches all of these different ways, I think personally, the idea of being able to just listen and respond to a moment 
and be in that moment and actually be able to be present and speak to it and and do a good job in that moment <laughs> in the sense of you're not thinking 20 steps ahead. You're not thinking of your own agenda. You're really focused on the here and now, which is something that we don't do anymore. Right. It's so interesting that um, that broad view you have of, of multiple sectors and seeing commonalities or consistencies that run across them. Do you notice anything different or special about the museum sector compared to the other areas, uh, other sectors that you work in? Absolutely. Um, when I work with museums, I'm usually working with either like education. So we're thinking of like museum educators, docents, anyone that's dealing with the public. Visitor services is another branch that we do a lot of work with, as well as with boards. So uh, the museum's board, we might do a storytelling workshop or a communication workshop. And what I find very specific with museums is it's really hard sometimes to get people to just have fun. And we talk about the idea of having fun and being lighthearted. And I think we, we all take ourselves so seriously, no matter what profession. I feel like museums, mm -hmm. for some reason, has this like... It doesn't matter if you're in visitor services or if you are a docent or if you are a chat, like an educator that's working through K through 12, you have to learn to laugh at yourself and you have to get out of your head sometimes. And I find that museums are the, the sector that has the hardest time with that. And we're working with like accountants and salespeople and like Viacom CEOs and people that are working in sales and museums have the hardest time getting out of their heads and just having a little levity. Yeah, I'm really interested also that boards are a big part of yeah. the, the people that you work with because in some ways, and this, this might be a really naive perspective, I think about education and that makes sense. I think about visitor services and these communication skills make sense. But if you're talking about communication as being core to this, then having uh boards be like be part of this process or go through this process sounds hugely important but to me pretty unintuitive I'd love to hear a little bit more about sort of a whether that's the same work that you're doing or whether there are different expectations when you're working with boards and also just a little bit more about what that what those outcomes start to look like and how it comes about like how do you get invited in to, t to work with a board yeah Absolutely. So when we're working with anyone, it all starts with their goals. I make sure to have conversations with any museum, any board, any visitor services department, whatever it is. And it's always that breakdown of like, what do you want to accomplish? I don't really accept the answer. We want everything fixed. And I've gotten that answer before, so it's not its not me just making a joke. Like, I've literally had a museum saying, well, we have a lot of problems. Please fix them. And it's like, <laughs> I'm not, that's above my pay grade beyond anything. <laughs> yeah. And I, I'll try. And it's really coming down to those core issues. So thinking about boards and things not being incredibly intuitive, like you wouldn't think like, oh, a board should take an improv class. Well, a lot of times a board is drawing together a lot of different people from a lot of different walks of life, and they need to find some commonality under a mission, under a focus. And that lies in this idea of communicating ideas. So we don't end up a lot of times working with the board first. We'll do a workshop with another department and someone will say, oh, this was incredible for X 
or this really worked out for our facilitators becoming better to communicate to our visitors, maybe we should try something like this for the board. So it's similar work, not the same in the sense of when I'm working with a board, it ends up being revolving around both their mission statements and the idea of communicating the mission of the board, of the museum, being able to talk about the museum or foundation or whatever umbrella organization is pulling that board together. And then also the idea that always comes in, we get the people want to have fun. We want to get to know each other in a different way and have fun. And it's the part of improv that I have a love-hate relationship with in that sense of team building, where when people call me for a team building activity, I cringe and think of a trust fall because I don't do any Mm -hmm. of that stuff. (laughs) But people understand that word, team building. So I always say it's a side effect. It's never a core focus. We do laugh together. We get to know one another. And what ends up happening specifically with board workshops is they become more comfortable speaking about areas in the museum that they have to be ambassadors for. Much like with museum education, you're an ambassador to that museum. You are talking about the collection, the objects, the educational programs, whatever you're doing, you're still speaking about something and have to be some sort of, I would say, I don't want to say expert because I hate that word, but it's more of like an authentic voice on the subject. Right. So, Jen, the focus of this episode is is kind of on the infusion of outsider perspectives into the museum, whether that be artist interventions or commercial kind of interventions like yours. Um, do you think there are things that you have licensed to do as an outsider within an institution that, that like, internal staff are, are unable to do? And, and why do you think this might be the case? Absolutely. I can't tell you how many times I have gone into organizations, museums specifically, and heard, I really want to say this, but I can't. So can you. And that, that whole mentality of someone else coming in from the outside, it's, it's both sides. It's that. And it's also, if someone's coming in from the outside and they're telling you something, you might listen to them a little bit more because it's a different voice, because it's someone with a different perspective, because someone is looking at it in a different way. I, when I come in, I, I make sure that I am working for the goals that I was hired on. Like I have an objective. Someone has asked me to do something. At the same time, I probably never will see these people again. So that's not saying I'm going to go around and, excuse my language, be, be an ass. But I am going to be really honest because that's the kind of person I am. I was just doing a workshop, like I said, with the Ringling. And I, I was talking about this. We were walking around with the docents after it was a new class of docents. They're all fantastic, lovely people. And they were throwing around all of these really academic terms. And I kept like raising my hand and saying, what does this mean? What does this mean? What does this mean? And I feel like as if I was a member of the staff, that wouldn't necessarily be taken in the same sort of way as it was with me because I spent all, all morning with them showing them like, hey, you need to reach people where they're at. You need to talk to your audience, not at them. We're working on leveling the playing field, making this accessible. So me calling out something like that with that much forwardness and, and being that abrasive was something that they actually thanked me for afterwards. And at the same time, it was received in a way that it was constructive criticism because it wasn't the voice that was kind of nurturing them through things. 
I think as an outsider, you you both have that ability. And then at the same time, there's that problem that comes in where you could be seen as just a satellite workshop. And that's why I really try to incorporate as much as like the museum's pedagogical approach to whatever we're doing into what I'm doing. Because if you're just a satellite workshop, we've all gone to them. Like you go to one and you're like, hey, that was fun. I'm never going to use this again. or I'm never going to do this again. At the same time, the ones that happen once that incorporate language that you're used to hearing or talk about things that you know are happening in your museum or works that are on the wall or objects in the collection, that sticks a little bit more. So being an outsider, you kind of it's like a double-edged sword where you can say all this stuff and, and it doesn't matter, kind of, as long as you stay on mission. And at the same time, you can say all this stuff and it doesn't matter because they yeah. can choose never to listen to you again. It's one of the things I find sort of funny and I, I think it could be frustrating, although I, I choose never to be frustrated by it uh, as an academic is, you know, I, I can teach things to my class and then I bring an external person in who can say very similar things, but they're listened to quite differently from me in part because they are coming from this outside and, you know, coming from immediately from the profession as, as opposed to me, who's now teaching. And, totally. and, and I find that a really interesting dynamic, but it makes me wonder whether museums or classrooms or other institutions actually need to bring in those external voices and those external perspectives to work through difficult or challenging problems or even just to reframe the current problem? I think it's really important for the outside, not just because I'm an outside source, (laughs) but at the same time thinking about what I do, not just for museums in the sense of working on your speaking skills when you're constantly listening to the same voice that has the same cadence and the same movement, everything that's happening. So your voice is moving at something that can be akin to white noise if you don't think about changing it up and becoming more dynamic. I think the same thing happens when we're listening to people in professional development or in class. If it's constantly the same voice, then you can tune it out after a while. If you hear things in different ways and you're getting these different methods of input, they tend to stick a little bit more because you're hearing all different tonalities, you're hearing all different manners of speaking, you're hearing different ways of presentation, because everyone has a different speaking style. I'm very upfront when I'm consulting because that's generally what I've been asked to do. If I'm, when I was teaching at a museum and leading, uh, leading a PD for peers, I was a little different and I, I know I was a little more apologetic because I'm like, these people are my peers. Like I'm telling them, I'm basically going into their house and rearranging their furniture and they didn't ask me to. Whereas if I'm coming in as, as, a, as a consultant or as an outside force, someone's hired me to do this and someone's asked me, hey, rearrange our furniture and we'll put it back if we don't want it this way. But for now, rearrange our furniture. So I think the, the voice and the different ways of speaking and then the, just the different ways of presenting information helps different learning styles learn. So the, in the end, it's a, it's a good thing. Yeah, I hadn't even considered really the physicality of it or literally using different language or like, like sometimes I think you think about uh, when someone is coming in and speaking about things that you yourself know and believe and have been speaking to, uh, you know, I think there can be a certain level of frustration, but I hadn't actually put together how important just actual difference becomes 
And also, as you say, you have then liberties to you're not having to engage in the long-term dynamics. You're not having to engage in these long developed relationships where this conversation or this series of conversations is just one of a a much longer dialogue. You're actually being able to come in and say, well, no, let's just focus on this issue as opposed to having to think through all of those other factors. Absolutely. It's a, it's, it's always interesting because I, I get the side when it, coming into any organization, so museums, yes, every organization, I get the side that's presented to me, and then I get the side that's in the first 10 minutes, right? right. <laughs> which on occasion are very different sides. And then I get the participant side, which either happens like midway through afterwards in an email after. And it's just, it's just fascinating because you're dealing with people. So of course, there's relationships that are happening, and some of them might not be great. And some of them might be amazing and there might be a big set of change happening in the museum or in the organization. And that I find is is when I come in sometimes is when there's like a huge change happening in the organization or something needs to be different. So there's all of this tension that's already being built in because of change. It doesn't matter if you're, I'm spontaneous, change makes me a little crazy sometimes and it's change is stressful. So that that energy builds itself in sometimes. So it's a it's it's a big psychology experiment, I think, coming in from the outside because you're suddenly like thrown into this microcosm where everyone's been existing just fine and you're it can be frustrating and I I just I love it because it's a moment that I know that it's like these people, you're getting what you get right now and you can choose to take it. And I tell everyone before we start, and it was something that I actually heard from an outsider workshop at the Guggenheim where a group psychologist came in and her first sentence to us was, you can like me, you can hate me, you can like what I do, you can hate what I do. Make up your mind at the end. And I say that to every group I'm with because you give them the option to choose and then they don't spend the whole time trying to make judgments about you. It also ties into improv in the sense of, okay, you're in the moment. You're not like thinking about, oh man, I'm hungry or oh man, I want to go to lunch or when is this over or what are we doing next? You're paying attention to the here and now. And then after, if you want to send an email like, hey, this was a waste of my time or I felt like this didn't do anything by all means, go for it. You can really see a person's mentality when you say that, though, because if they spend the whole time judging and thinking about it, then they have a hard time themselves being in the moment. Yeah, for sure. So, Jen, I, you know, you approach your work with the EE through a lens of professional development or continuing education, and I think that's really great because I because I kind of feel like you're contributing to the capacity of the museum, um, boosting their in- internal resources kind of by building up uh, their internal skill sets. Um, and so like when you're gone, they can implement the learnings, right? It's, and the museum itself doesn't become reliant on you in perpetuity. Absolutely, or, yeah, absolutely um, right? not. And, yeah. and they're not outsourcing their core competencies to you. So they're kind of bringing this stuff in and, you know, some other nonprofit or some other for-profit, um, 
agencies that aren't so healthy for the well-being and sustainability of museums is is this something that you're consciously aware of and and is it is it how important is that to the aspect of your work kind of onboarding these new skills yeah i'm so consciously aware of this okay, <laughs> like <good. laughs> as as a i'm so aware of this and i'm glad that it comes across like that because i i i can't stand when it's like a one-off that takes away from it's a one-off that is all bells and whistles or a one-off workshop or a program that comes in and it's like, great, now what? Like, so what? And that's such a big question that we actually ask during workshops. Like after every activity I do with museums specifically, with everyone, museums specifically in this example, we'll do the activity and then we'll have a reflection. So it'll be, okay, so what? Now what? And how that so what is like, how does this apply to your every day? How does this connect with whatever area you're working with in museums? And how are you going to use this? Now what? When we did workshop for SFMOMA before they even reopened, I've worked with all of the docents, educators. The, the term that they use is, I think, specific to SFMOMA. We've also worked with their visitor services. So in this instance, it's just the people that are giving both public and school tours and before they even opened, we were talking about how we could continue to use this and incorporate this into everyday programming when the museum reopened. I just came, I just was back at SFMOMA. They're open clearly in May and come to find that some of the new, new class, we were doing a yes and activity and this one gentleman raised his hand and he said, we already do this in the gallery. And the person that hired me, Julie Charles, says, yeah, Jen taught everyone how to do this. So what you're <laughs> seeing is them doing it. And it was such a lovely moment because I tell people, I'm like, this is not proprietary. Like, you don't need me to do this. These are skills that even if you don't work at the museum anymore, you're going to need to know how to be a better listener. And you're going to have to yes and someone in the sense of, yes, I hear you. So I'm affirming what you said. And I'm adding information instead of saying like, yeah, yeah, whatever. But here's the real story. Well, actually, here's the real thing. So I, I really do believe in that idea of professional development and continuing education for staff, because if you give them tools to make things better and to make a change, then you don't have to depend on all of these outside sources. I, I'm thrilled if a museum's like, hey, we do this all the time, or we warm up in staff meetings with one of your activities. I'm like, that's, that's amazing. Thank you for telling me. So I know that things aren't going out into the ether. And at the same time, I'm always happy when I end up coming back and they're like, hey, we're doing this. Now what can we do next? So I see they're actually, it's like going to the gym. I see that they're like doing the first set of workouts and they've plateaued. So they want to one-up it or do more. Yeah, that's nice. This idea of it being a platform where you can build on. A lot of what you're talking about can really be sort of distilled down or extrapolated out to being about an organization's ability to embrace change or transformation and to build on the change that's been happening, which can be pretty intimidating, especially for, you know, legacy institutions and also I'm sure some of the private enterprise you work with. Do you then see the work that you're doing as really being more at that sort of meta level of organizational change and transformation or is it much more about 
sort of tactical, immediate skills and, and, and sort of is it of the moment or is it that really long-term sort of organizational change? I think it's both. And I think it's it's both a little bit in, in museums specifically because of how we run those workshops or how I teach those workshops because I, I let people know from the get-go, say I'm working with educators I say, well, some of these activities, if you have a tour today or a program today, you literally could take this activity and do it immediately. So in that sense, it's affecting both the long and short game of we want our tours to be more interactive and we want our programming to be more audience-centric. And at the same time, I also do the idea of like risk-taking and improv is a big goal that happens with museums or the idea of like yes and communication and audience-centric and visitor-centric. And that's more of a long game because you can't change a behavior immediately. You have to work on something like that. And so it's it's a bit of both in the sense of they're looking to be more interactive or looking to be more visitor-centered. And at at the same time, that it can be something immediate because I've had people leave the program and go to give like a spotlight talk on an artwork or go to give a program right after and I get an email that day saying, hey, I used this, and it was awesome. So that's very immediate. Like, I took this. I don't feel like I have to work towards something. I can use it right away. Hmm. So that's all. This is so fascinating. Um, before we wrap up with you, Jen, we've been following the discussion online on Twitter that's kind of been happening over the past couple of days about when and why people leave the museum sector. I think it's um, you and Ali Rico and um, I Jen. Think Seema's been part of it. Yeah, Seema's mm-hmm. part, Seema, previous guest part of it. So can you tell us a bit about your transition from being an insider to an outsider and, and maybe the factors that, that played into that to the extent that you can talk about it? And do you think that any of the resistance factors that we have talked about in this entire interview, things from organizational change or or whatever, contribute to staff churn, museum staff churn in in some way? Absolutely. I, I was extremely lucky with one of my museum positions. So in New York, for, the, for people that aren't familiar, if you want to teach, you freelance at a lot of different organizations. So you're not just at one place. If you're at one place, you probably have a lot of admin responsibilities as well. And even today, outside of the museum field, I'm not an admin person by any stretch of the imagination, yeah. and I'm comfortable <laughs> admitting that flaw. And it's okay. I, I really enjoyed the teaching aspect. So I was jumping around with different organizations for years. Like I was at the Frick Collection. I was at the Guggenheim. I was at the Queens Museum. I was at the Children's Museum of Art. I was at the Transit Museum. So in all of these different experiences, I found that when I was actually at the Guggenheim as an educator, I was so lucky because I was encouraged to take risks and what I was, this this outside theater perspective on things was actually encouraged and embraced 
by people there, my supervisors, my fellow educators. And I think I was told no once there when I had an idea. And that was when I wanted to grow bacteria in a summer camp program. <laughs> so they said and no? They said no. Shocking. And then they later, Sharon actually I'm sure remembers this because she called me later, emailed me later. And she's like, I was just grossed out. You can do it if you want to. And I was like, no, nah, I'm over this idea already. It's fine. Because it was a Kandinsky workshop that we were thinking about. Yeah. So we looked at, anyway, there's art tied in. It wasn't just growing germs in the Guggenheim. Sure. And, and at, at the same time, though, I, I saw in a lot of my other organizations, as much as I got from them, I saw this inability to kind of embrace a new or change or try something different and not the same old, same old. So when I, when I saw EE, like, being something that I actually could change. And it was something more than just the the few school groups that I ended up having. I could actually think about at having other educators really start to focus on working with their audience. And I, I didn't get that same opportunity with some of my other organizations in the sense of even though I was on staff, I would be like, hey, I can totally lead a workshop for you guys. And people were like, no, no, thanks. Meanwhile, my coworkers were like, why do I have to pay to take your class? You work here. Like, you should be giving it to us for free. And I was like, I have offered. It's not happening. I don't know what to tell you right now. <laughs> so, so in the end, it was this idea that I was like, I can do more as, a, as an outside person than having to sort of answer to whatever powers that be, whatever ideas that be. As well as I knew for a certain extent that I was getting more and more outside of the box with a lot of my teaching. I, I knew that some of my improv activities and some of my theater-based activities that I was proposing sooner or later would get shut down and had been shut down at other institutions in the sense of like, it's too active, it's too much. That's not how we do things here. And that... I, I can't, stagnancy isn't something that anyone's really happy with deep down, and I definitely am not. So when I when I left, it was less to do with the conversation that's happening on Twitter right now, which is fantastic with the idea of salary and, and this idea that museum professionals are not often taken care of for as much experience that goes into it, and more to do with the idea of like, well, this is how we've always done it and we're not changing, this is too different. And for me, it was like I had to step out in order to step back in. So when I stopped working at an institution as an educator, that's when I think more institutions were like, hey, do you want to lead a development session for us on improv in the galleries or on communication? And that's when I knew that it would have a, a more of a lasting effect. So I, I wasn't in a position. I, I feel the salary thing. My husband actually works at a museum, so I'm still very much embroiled in the museumness, in that sense. And it's a, it's, it's just a strange, strange world out there. With museum people need to be a, we we do so much. Otherwise, it would just be stuff collecting dust. It, it, visitor services, guards, everyone that touches the public, like that's the opinion. People aren't necessarily going to remember the thing they saw. They're going to remember how they felt when they saw it. And all of that builds in. Like you go to a restaurant and you have a terrible waitress, you're going to remember the terrible waitress, not the food. And same thing with museums. It's all customer service in the end. 
Yeah, that's fantastic. It's funny you talking about what you can do and, you know, from inside and outside. And part of part of my thinking in when we were coming up with this episode is, of course, I'm now stra- straddling this insider outsider role as being back in academia, but also teaching to museum studies. And one of the reasons that I ended up going back sort of to this outside from within the actual museum was in part because I felt like I could make such um, greater impact by being able to teach the the next generation of people coming up through as opposed to being within a single institution. So I think there are lots of lots of reasons why we have this sort of straddling between the inside and the outside. I think that's that's a good having that having some outside perspective be kind of a connection or a core because I I mean I tell museums all the time and I'm not not afraid to say it from the rooftops about anything like we all need to stop trying to reinvent the wheel like take a wheel make it work for you and make it better don't keep trying to create this next big thing like work on work on what you have and make it make it work and in that sense of people like sometimes museums get so insular where they're not talking to one another like we say we talk to one another at conferences and we know we don't and and having like an outside point of reference where people can say oh hey me too or oh hey I, I go through this too that's why the twitter chats sometimes are so incredible like i tweet museums being able to have that like connective tissue where people can have that me too moment, they can, they feel like they're going through a similar thing. Yeah, absolutely. Jan, thank you so much for for joining us on the show. This has been really, really wonderful. And it's so nice to hear more about your work, but also your observations from connecting with so many institutions, uh, both within the sector and beyond it. Absolutely. It was awesome to be here. Thank you guys for having me. So that was amazing. They were two incredible interviews, Jeffrey. Yeah, I you know, I think the fact that they come from different perspectives, um, balancing the artist intervention with yes. the private enter- enterprise intervention really gives a full picture of the impact that um, outside thinking can have uh, on, on a museum. And how it is actually a really important thing. I, I know that when I was sometimes working in museums, uh, seeing outsiders come in and hearing them be able to say things um, with, with a different level of recognition could, could sometimes actually be a little, a little frustrating. Yeah. But it's also an incredibly important thing. I think Jen's point that people actually speak differently and they actually use different language and they have these different abilities to um, to interact because they're not trying to balance, you know, the same dynamics that you are day in and day out is right. a really significant thing. Yeah, and, you know, even that the, you know, the tactic of bringing in an outside voice to help tell the story or, or tell the... Um, um, uh, tell the mission that that you that you're trying to move forward within your own institution is something that 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 many of us in the museum sector utilize, right? I mean, I bring people in and talk about um, progressive ideas the, um, to 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 my museums, and I hope that um, the the network of of progressive museum workers can use each other in that way. Um, you know, it doesn't. You don't have to be a huge uh, museum community rock star, but 
you know, bring in outside voices from other museums in your city, you know, to talk about things, drinking about museums, all that stuff, you know? Absolutely. I mean, and even this is sort of part of the point of Museo Punks, right? Is that we get to talk to people who will push us and challenge us to think about our own practice. But also it's a great reason to talk to people who can phrase ideas differently or who are just thinking about them with different backgrounds. Yeah, definitely. So all of the things we talked about today on this episode, links, uh, everything, uh, show notes can be found at museopunks.org. Yes, indeed. And we absolutely have to, as always, thank our presenting sponsor. Museo Punks is presented every month by the American Alliance of Museums, and we are so grateful to be working with you. Thank you, AAM. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at Museo Punks. Yeah, and, and with that, Suze, I think we're done. Is that it? I think we're done. We're done. Amazing. I can't wait to talk to you next month, Jeffrey. Next month. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.